Good morning. My name is Kim Gardner, and I will be doing the scripture this morning. Today we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, so you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can look at the screens. Um, And this is coming from the Message Bible, chapters, uh, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 17 through 27 of the Message. As he went out into the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said, Why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honor your father and your mother. He said, Teacher, I have, from my youth, kept all of those. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. He said, There's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth, and come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept asking, You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. That set the disciples back on their heels. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can put it off, pull it off all by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. The word of the Lord. You ever hear a really great voice on the radio, and you say to yourself, I wonder what this guy looks like. You're going to find out uh, what one of those faces look like. Today's guest speaker is Carl Gardner, uh, Kim's uh, husband. And uh, I met these guys last year, right around the time that the farmer's market was opening up. And they had been coming to our church for a couple of weeks, and they introduced themselves to uh, Susie and I. And uh, it's been really fun ever since. Carl reached out to me and asked if he can buy me lunch. And he offered himself as a friend and uh, found out what his areas of expertise were. And he's been lending them uh, to me to help uh, lead the church. So it's been a really fruitful, and uh, I've really appreciated this um, openness from Carl, and it's my pleasure to bring him up to you today. Carl, come on up. Thank you, Peter. So this is what it looks like from up here. (laughs) You look all bright and friendly this morning. That's good. Um, Because I need to get one thing out of the way uh, right away. I'm not a preacher, So this next uh, 30 minutes or so may be just God's way of testing your kindness. Um, So be kind and keep smiling. Many of you probably know my wife, Kim, who was just here reading the scripture. Uh, She's a lot easier to know than I am because she's sort of bubbly and friendly and sparkly and wonderful. And she makes friends without even really trying. 
And uh, she's been involved with the women's ministry here for uh, most of this past year that we've been here, so she has a number of friends here. I'm a little bit slower to get to know people, so uh, I know a few of you, but, but not quite so many. So just a little quick word about us. We um, have been married for 29 years. We uh, have four adult kids, two dogs, and temporarily a cat who's going to be leaving us soon with uh, one of our daughters who's moving to Portland. We came here from Wisconsin about six years ago, and uh, we spent five years church roaming around the Seattle area trying to find a place that felt like home to us before we finally settled in here about this time uh, last year. So how did I wind up here in front of you this morning? It's actually not a very um, interesting story, but I'll share it with you anyway. (laughs) Kim and I have been doing something that we call practicing saying yes, and I'm going to tell you the story behind that uh, in a minute. It's kind of our new motto around our house. Uh, We've become mostly empty nesters these days, and we have started to say, you know, let's just say yes whenever we can to people. Uh, And preaching was not something that I was really looking to do. In fact, I, I wouldn't really say what I'm going to do today is preaching. I think it's more like a testimony to share a couple of stories from our life uh, with you. But I wasn't necessarily looking to do this. But Peter uh, approached me one day and said, hey, would you be willing to, to give this a try? And, uh, of course, the first thing that went through the back of my mind was, heck no. But uh, then I remembered my wife smiling at me and saying, we're saying yes. So I said yes, and uh, here, here I am in front of you today. So I have to uh, f- figure out how to use this now. So this say yes thing started for Kim and me, uh, it was about a year and a half ago. We received a wedding invitation from a young man who had uh, played football with one of our sons uh, fairly briefly. We knew his parents pretty well from the football days. We didn't really know Zach all that well, uh, and we didn't know his fiance at all. Um, and Zach and our son were not particularly close friends, even though they'd been teammates for a couple of years. So this invitation comes in the mail. We've all probably had this. And we have a decision to make. Would we go to the time and expense to travel across the country to Tampa, Florida, to go to a wedding on a weekend? Uh, Or would we do what probably seemed like, at the time, maybe the more logical thing and just politely decline and say, gee, thanks, but we can't can't make it? Uh, And we kind of surprised ourselves because we decided to go. We said yes. And we went, and we spent two days on airplanes and airports and one day on the ground in Tampa, and we went to the wedding. We had a nice time. Uh, We saw a few people that we hadn't seen in a few years and renewed a couple of those acquaintances. Nothing really very life-changing happened uh, on the trip, but as a result of the trip, we did get to thinking about this question, and we started to think about, you know, how open are we really? How available are we? How accessible are we when someone comes along with something, a request or an opportunity or a need that we didn't expect and we didn't see coming? How ready are we to go out of our comfort zone and out of our routine and do something new and do something unexpected? We started to really kind of think about those things and talk about them uh, at home. Because it seems like God works that way, doesn't it? He sneaks up on us in ways we're not expecting. He 
surprises us and we have to stay alert and we have to be open and we have to be listening when he comes around. Otherwise, we'll miss the opportunity. So Kim and I decided while we were on that Tampa trip and in the days to follow that we were going to work on saying yes more often so that we don't miss out too much. And I have to tell you, uh, for me, a lot of the yeses are against my better judgment, okay? Uh, for Kim, I think it comes more naturally. She's more of a yes type person. She's, her default setting is to just jump right in and have a great time and make new friends and have fun and make the most of it. But I'm not really wired that way. I'm, my default is, well, let me think about it. Uh, I'm analytical. And I'm also, I've become over the years kind of the master at avoiding that phone call or finding the reason not to go or figuring out why this is not quite the right time, but maybe some other time. Uh, I'm good at keeping my options open, and I'm really good at being noncommittal about things. And maybe you're like me in that way. If you are, uh, don't feel too badly about it. Even Moses was like us. Uh, You know, when he met God at the burning bush, he tried every excuse possible to avoid making a commitment, right? It's like, oh, Lord, you know, why me? I mean, I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not a very good speaker. I don't have the skills. I'm not a leader. Can't you find somebody else? Uh, so you and I, as commitment avoiders, we're in pretty good company, uh, along with Moses. So the problem with uh, commitments is that they require a lot of commitment, And I looked up this word commitment in, the, uh, in my Collins Dictionary, and this is what it says. It's an obligation or promise that restricts one's freedom of action. And I thought, wow, you know, that definition really says something about who we are as a culture, right? Because I, I remember, I think I remember this right. I mean, this might be the, the sort of gauzy vision of the good old days, but I think that my grandparents in their generation looked at commitment as a virtue, but today, we look at it as an intrusion on our, on our lives. This month, I don't know if any of you see the Atlantic magazine, but they published an article that the, the title was, How to Say Yes Without Saying Yes. And it, the article features this linguistics professor from American University, uh, and she says that today, relationships in general are becoming more fluid and less committal. And she goes on to point out some examples. She says couples, and especially young couples today, they hang out instead of going on a date, right? Anybody heard that one before? We hear that from from our kids. Uh, We prefer to rent rather than own. We live together rather than get married. All around us, this professor says, there's a diminishing readiness to commit to things. We've even developed an entire language of non-commitment, so especially through... Uh, these things, social media and texting and so on, if someone asks something of us, instead of saying yes, we can just send them a thumbs up or we can send them a smiley face or some sort of emoji, which is a way of not really saying yes, kind of saying, yeah, I guess I'm okay with that, but I'm not really committed. So there's always a plausible deniability there. Um, Have you been on an airplane lately? Anybody sat in the exit row? where they come around, the the flight attendant comes around now when you're in the exit row, and they say, the FAA rules require uh, me to ask if you are committed to help your fellow passengers in the event of an emergency. And then they require you to look them right in the eye and say audibly, 
yes. And when they do it, I, I don't know if you've been through this, this experience, it happens to me a lot because I'm tall, I sit in the exit row a lot, but it feels sort of creepy when they ask you that, right? I have to actually look at you and say yes? Ooh. Um, so we hate commitment because it ties us down, it pins us down. And especially those of us who live in an affluent community, like Mercer Island, or Bellevue, or Seattle in general, or frankly anywhere in the United States, by world standards, we are affluent and we are comfortable and we have lots of wonderful options in our lives, don't we? We have places we can go, we have things we can do, we have stuff that we own that we want to use, and... um, You know, why would we want to miss out on any of that by being previously committed to stuff that that keeps us from doing our things? But, you know, the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus Christ challenging people to commit. And when Jesus challenges you to follow him, it's a definite call. And he requires a definite answer, a clear answer. It has to be wholehearted. Jesus wants total commitment. He's not going to let us off the hook with the thumbs up. Right? The smiley face. Jesus? Right? When he says, follow me, he's not talking about clicking follow on the Twitter page. He wants a life commitment. And of course, with Jesus, once we make the commitment, that's when things start to get interesting, right? That's when he starts to do the real work in our lives. And I want to tell you a story about that. Um, Sorry about the grainy photo. This is a cell phone picture of a printed photograph. Uh, But that's Kim and me on our wedding night in 1986. Um, We came from fairly different backgrounds. Uh, One of the key differences between us at that time was faith. She had pretty much always had it in her life, came from a family uh, based in faith, and and I didn't really know what it was. Uh, We'd been married a couple of years when uh, we were attending a church in Portland, and they sponsored a men's retreat. And Kim thought it'd be a real nice idea for me to go. And I, of course, didn't see any reason why I would want to do that. Um, And guys, let me ask you, what did I do? I went, right? I went. I was a little bit grumpy about it, but I tried not to show it, and I went. And this retreat was down on the Oregon coast, uh, down at Cannon Beach at the conference center, It was a rainy Friday night, the end of a long week. It was a drive through the dark in the rain. I was tired, Uh, you know, end of the week, blah, 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 woe is me. I had secretly tucked a good book in my bag because I thought maybe I'll just get some alone time, get some rest. Uh, But I got to the conference center, and uh, I right away discovered it was going to be shared rooms. I was going to be sharing a room with somebody that I didn't know. So you can imagine how delighted I was. Um, <laughs> but I had committed. You know, I had said yes, and I was there, so, so I was in. And then um, a God thing happened. So we talk about we make a commitment, and then God steps in, and he starts to do his thing, right? My roommate turned out to be a guy named John Hickox, who I, I, I didn't know. I hadn't met him before. John, at the time, owned what was the toniest, uh, most famous sort of high-end beauty salon in downtown Portland. He was hanging out with and pampering the rich and the famous and the beautiful people of Portland. I know, you're thinking, are there any? But yeah, yes, there are. (laughs) Um, And and that weekend, in in our little dorm-type room, this isn't the actual room, but it was sort of like this, 
We sat up late at night, and John Hickox poured out to me this most amazing story that I will never forget. Uh, He told me a story of how he had been going through bankruptcy, and he still wasn't sure if he was going to lose his business and his family's home. And it had been going on for a year and a half or two years, something like that at this point, lots of lawyers and courts and so on. And he told me that weekend that there was just one thing that kept him going through all of that, through that dark period, and it was his tithe to the church. He said that he felt he had failed his family, that he'd failed his employees, and he had failed all the people he owed money to through his business, but he was determined that he was not going to fail God. And I get a little choked up just thinking about it because I remember him, I just remember the joy on his face and in his voice as he told me this story. And I could see, man, that is really commitment. This guy, God has carried him through something because he has been faithful to God. And it carried him through what was the toughest experience of his life. Now, um, the reason this was really profound for me was because during the early years of our marriage, Kim and I, we, we didn't fight much. We rarely fought, but one of the things that we were kind of tense about was money. Uh, and again, we, we had a little bit different backgrounds. She, she had come from a family where she was accustomed to having enough of it. They weren't rich, but they, she was accustomed to having enough money to not really have to think much about money. And I wasn't. I, she was home, making a home, raising our children at the time. She carried the checkbook. She did the shopping. She was a great homemaker, made us a, a wonderful home. And I was working, and I was the person who paid the bills and balanced the checkbook and, you know, sort of caught up at the end of the month, figured out where we were. And uh, it was hard for me um, because I felt my job was look out for our future, invest the money, save, uh, be careful with the buck, find a way to make do, uh, kind of live below our means, all of those kinds of things. So the day-to-day money stuff for us was one of the few um, pain points probably the only pain point, really, in our marriage in those early days. But So, so here's the God part of the story. Um, at the time of that church retreat when John Hickok, when I met John Hickox, and he, and he told me his story about bankruptcy and the tithe, I, I had just a couple days prior to that received for the first time in my life a substantial bonus in my work. And it was, for us at the time, it was, it was uh, you know, quite a bit of money. It was equal to about three months of pay, three or four months. It was the biggest check I'd ever gotten for anything in my life. And we, as you can imagine, as a young couple, had been thinking quite a bit about what to do with it. Uh, And Kim, of course, was thinking about things like furniture, okay? We had a house that we had bought that had nothing in most of it, and uh, except for the kids' toys, and they were running everywhere. And so she's thinking furniture, uh, and I was thinking, of course, about all the fun stuff. I'm thinking like, oh, we can pay off our car loans. We can start a college fund. It's put some into a retirement account. You know, I've always been Mr. Fun in that way. <laughs> but after I heard John Hickox tell me his story, I felt so convicted. And I came home from that retreat. And I'm thinking to myself, she is going to really regret sending me on this retreat. And I came in and sat down. She said, how's the retreat? And I said, honey, I think we need to give 10% of that bonus to our church. And I was really expecting a battle. I thought, okay, this is going to be a fight. And she just looked at me and smiled, and she said, okay. 
And I said, well, I'm not done yet because I think we need to start giving 10% of every paycheck to the church. And she, again, just looked at me and said, okay. And I'm here to tell you that from that day forward, for the next 15, 20 years of our marriage, we never, ever again argued about money. Not once. So what happened there, I don't know. I can't really speak for God, but I can tell you we've talked about it many times. We think that once we said yes and made a commitment, that God just took the issue off of our table. He just took it away. We believe that God honored the fact that we made a commitment and and we started to follow through with it. We chose to put ourselves and our marriage under his authority and he showered us with peace and harmony in our home. And we are so thankful for that. Now, I'm not up here today to tell you you should start tithing. That's a different conversation. It's not my role to tell you that. And in fact, I have to give you full disclosure since I shared that story with you. I told you we've been moving around and not really settled in a church the last five years or so, and we haven't been giving a steady tithe during that period of time. Actually, it's kind of a a current hot topic around our dinner table because Kim's ready to go. And I, true to form, am still in the analysis phase. So uh, what I need is to bump into another John Hickox to kind of kick me in the seat of the pants on that. But So telling you to tithe is not the point, but this is the point. I really believe that God is so eager to work with us once we say yes. And I sure don't always do it. I've kind of painted the picture for you. I, I can really easily be a no guy. Uh, And especially as I've gotten older and gotten more settled and more comfortable and more set in my ways, it's something that I think happens to a lot of us as we move along in our life. It it becomes easier and easier to sort of just say, well, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not right now. You know, we can come up with a million excuses and reasons why. But, you know, if I hadn't gone on that retreat, even though I went grudgingly, I didn't go with a great positive spirit. And if I hadn't made friends with a guy that I was really disappointed to meet, frankly, when I found out we were going to share this little room, uh, if we hadn't made friends, if he hadn't told me that story, uh, I, I don't know that God would have ever given us the gift that he gave us of such great um, peace and harmony and unity in our marriage that served us so well for so many years and still does today. You know, he challenges us with opportunity when we don't expect it. And sometimes it comes in a package that we don't recognize. Often it's through a person we don't see as his messenger. You you think about the central story of the gospel. He sent the world a baby in a barn stall instead of a warrior on a white stallion. And he asked us to honor him as our king. That's how God works. And he does it not only in the manger scene, but he does it in our lives every single day. And that's why we have to stay open and we have to stay awake and alert and maintain this attitude of yes, because we never know when it's coming. And when we do, when we keep that attitude, I think that's when God really gets down to business with us. So, oh, that slide was supposed to be up there the whole last uh, couple of minutes there, sorry. I forgot about that slide. So it it brings us to the story of the rich young ruler, which we heard in the scripture this morning uh, from Mark chapter 10. And I'd I'd like to just reread this for you for a minute in the context of this message. And I chose the, the message version. I don't usually read this version of the Bible, but 
I chose this one because it's so relatable, I think, in the, in the language here. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. As he went out into the street, a man, he is Jesus, right? As Jesus went out into the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence and said, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. The young man said, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. And Jesus looked him hard in the eye, and he loved him. He said, yeah, you know, good job. Now there's one thing left. Uh, Go sell everything you own and give it to the poor, and all your wealth will then be heavenly wealth, and then come follow me. The man's face clouded over, and this was the last thing he expected to hear, right? What have we been talking about? It's the last thing he expected to hear. Jesus loves to surprise us. And the young man walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? That might be us, right? People who have it all. The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich to get into God's kingdom. That set the disciples back on their heels. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. And Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. So the challenge that Jesus put to that young man was not only about his money, It was about his unwillingness to let go of his habits, of his hobbies, of the trappings, of his lifestyle, of the busy schedule of a guy who is affluent and powerful and accustomed to having his own way. And I don't know about you, but that really rings a bell for me as I think about my life and the place where I live and the way that I live it every single day. But, but look at what happens next. Jesus doesn't condemn the man. He doesn't rip him. He doesn't blast him. He doesn't put him down. He doesn't lecture him. He just looks him in the eye and loves him. But both Jesus and the young ruler were sad. They were heartsick because they saw the real truth about his spiritual condition. And, you know, when I read that passage of Scripture, I think to myself, I'm a lot like that guy. I'm a lot like that young ruler. And maybe you are too. I wouldn't call myself rich or powerful, but I would say we're well off, we're comfortable. I'm certainly busy. You know, just ask me, I'll tell you all about how busy I am. Um, I have all my stuff. I have my work and my family and my workout at the gym and my hobbies and my, my habits. Um, it's all my stuff. What happens in the passage, though, here in, in, in Mark is Jesus identifies the struggle that I face every day and that maybe you face as well. And that's the struggle to not be bound by those comforts, not be bound by our patterns and our rhythms of the affluent lifestyle that we enjoy in the United States in 2015. 
If you look again at, at this part, this is my favorite part, uh, uh, and, and really the reason why I wanted this version from the message. The young ruler was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he was not about to let go. And I thought, wow, man, that nails it. That is me, in a nutshell. Now, I don't have the power to overcome that on my own. You know, I could sell my house, I could quit my job, I could give everything I have to the poor, I could spend all my time serving, and that still isn't going to save me. It's not going to make me like Christ. Only his gift can save me. And Peter and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and he was giving me some feedback on my outline for this message, and he made a statement that really stuck with me. He said, by definition, a gift can only be given by the giver. The giver decides what to give when to give it, and to whom. And I would argue to you that God is standing here right now in this room, and he's trying to give each one of us a gift. And the only part of that we can control is whether or not we're open to receive it. And I would ask you, are you open today? Are you open on Sunday morning? Are you going to be open on Monday when you go on about your business and get to work and, and resume your routines? Are you going to be ready to say yes Notice that the young ruler in, in uh, the scripture didn't say yes to Jesus, but he also didn't say no. He just wouldn't make a commitment. He turned sad, he turned around, he walked away. This guy was almost a disciple. Have you ever wondered when you read this passage, what would have happened if he had said yes? What would have happened if he had jumped in with Jesus? Like Simon did, and like Andrew and James and John, when, when Jesus called them to follow? What would have happened? What would he have seen? What amazing things might he have witnessed? What role might he have played in the birth of the church? But we'll never know that, because that young ruler could not bring himself to set out and go down the path less traveled. And this story makes me wonder about myself. How many times have I been almost there? Right? How many times have I missed God when he was standing there right in front of me with something that he wanted me to pay attention to? How many times have I been at a fork in the road that could have taken me closer to the, whatever destiny it is that he has for me, but I missed it because I was closed off or I was fearful or I was feeling sorry for myself or too tired or whatever I've got a million of those excuses. I could take you through all of them if you've got all day. So I have one more uh, personal story that I'd like to share with you that, that is a testimony about this. And again, it's from our early days of our marriage. We were living in Portland. Uh, this uh, bouncy little baby is Ben. He was our third child. He was our first son. He was born in 1991. Uh, and I can't even begin to tell you how over the moon I was to finally have a son. We had two beautiful daughters at the time, and I finally got a little boy, and I was ecstatic. And we were blessed uh, enough later to have a, a, another son uh, four years after. But at this time, I was just crazy about the fact that I had a little boy. But, you know, he was just an infant, a tiny infant, and we were noticing that there was something unusual about him. He, Ben had a an odd-shaped head. It was lumpy, and it didn't feel right. Uh, and to the point where 
we were sort of fearful about it. And even Kim and I didn't really talk about it very much. We sort of didn't want to be those silly young parents who overreact to everything and freak out, you know. So we didn't really say anything. We just kind of stayed quiet, but we we worried uh, quietly. And then one day when Ben was uh, two months old, this picture, he's a little older, obviously, he's in the jumper, but when he was only two months old, Kim had him and the girls out in public in Portland. And this pediatric nurse sees them, is looking at them for a while, and she comes marching right up to Kim, and she says, you need to get that baby to a doctor. There's something wrong with his head. Now, the, the mothers in uh, the room today can imagine how you react to that. She was devastated, and she gathered up the kids and came rushing home, and she was frantic and in tears, and this is in the days before we all had cell phones, right? So uh, she's rushing home, She's going to call me and call her mom and everything. She walks in the house, the telephone's ringing as she walks in, and it was me on the phone. And I'm all happy. I'm calling from my office to tell her about it. I'd just gotten off the phone from a two-hour conversation with this really cool company uh, in the Midwest that was calling to recruit me for a big uh, career opportunity. And I was calling to ask, would she like to come uh, for a visit to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a place we'd never been? And she, of course, her reality is this nurse and this conversation they've just had. And so we had a real sort of collision of worlds there that day. And it was a, it was a fairly uh, high-stress time for us. Well, we took the baby. We took Ben to the doctor. And then the doctor sent us to a specialist. And we learned that he had a problem that was going to require a very delicate surgery. Uh, ben was born with the soft spots in his head already fused together. It's a condition that's called cranial synostosis. And they were going to need to cut him open from ear to ear and basically take apart his whole skull and cut it into five pieces and then put it back together with spacers in between on the suture lines and sew him back up so that he could have a chance for his head to grow at a normal rate and not put pressure on his brain and let him develop uh, normally. And it's, uh, if it sounds awful to you, let me tell you, it sounds really awful when it's your baby and a two-month-old child. It is a very, very scary, very frightening thing to go through. Um, And the neurosurgeon that we went to told us that some of the kids with this condition would develop hydrocephalus, water in the brain. They would have uh, uh, impacted brains, and they would be developmentally disabled. And he said it wasn't all that uncommon for some of those kids to only live maybe 8, 10, 12 years. Uh, But he said, you know, if the surgery went well, he also had a chance to have a healthy life and to do well. And so only time was going to tell. He couldn't really promise us which way it was going to go. Each case was different. So we were scared to death, and we had decisions that we needed to make. And people were telling us, with very good reason, including our families, they were telling us, you're out of your minds to be thinking about moving halfway across the country in the middle of this. You need to hunker down, and you need to focus all your attention on that baby Uh, and just forget everything else. But we'd been kind of praying and trying to listen about this Wisconsin thing a little bit, and we just had this feeling that this move to Wisconsin was a thing that we were supposed to do. Well, we went and we had the surgery. That's, again, a a bad photo, but this is at Emanuel Hospital uh, in Portland, and uh, that was Ben. We were in the pediatric ward. That was just a short time before we took him down to give him to the uh, surgeons to work on him. And uh, he was really unhappy that day because he, they said, you know, he can't have anything to eat or drink all night. 
And Ben was hungry, let me tell you, as a little guy. And then we got delayed and, uh, because there was another surgery in there and we had to wait a long time. And he, he was really ornery as a hornet that day. Um, but we took him in and he had his surgery. It was June of 1991. And eight days after the surgery, I was on an airplane to Wisconsin to start uh, a new job. And a month after that, Kim came with the three little kids under age five. Uh, and joined me there, and we started our new life in the Midwest. And we were pretty much all on our own in Wisconsin. We didn't have any family anywhere nearby. We didn't know anybody there. But, you know, we were never afraid because we just felt like this was what we were supposed to do. And I'll fast forward the story here. We had 18 fantastic years in Wisconsin. It is the best place I can imagine to raise a family. It was It was wonderful. Our fourth child, as I mentioned, Charlie, was born there. He's actually a true cheesehead native. If you've never met one, you can meet Charlie. He'll probably be here for the second service. Uh, And Ben. Well, not only was Ben one of the lucky kids who came out healthy, he actually uh, went on to have just this remarkable uh, life story. As a kid, he became a really strong student, and he became a star athlete. In fact, uh, as things turned out, when we moved to Wisconsin, we moved into the same neighborhood as a man named Jack Harbaugh. And Jack's son, Jim Harbaugh, was later going to become the head football coach at Stanford University. Now, Jack, uh, when he retired, he was an old ball coach, and he watched our son, Ben, play in high school, and he knew the coaches, and he kind of became intrigued by him. And he did the research, and he looked at the film, and they got the transcripts, and he talked to the coaches, and he brought Ben to uh, Stanford's attention. And eventually, Jim Harbaugh offered our son Ben a full-ride football scholarship to Stanford as a senior. Ben was number 24 out of 23 recruits that they offered scholarships to that year. They'd had one kid that they'd offered who couldn't pass admissions, and they had to give the scholarship back. And Harbaugh came back around at the last minute. Uh, It was nine days before the signing day and offered Ben a scholarship. It was the only offer that he got from a BCS school. He was a long shot. I mean, he has always been a long shot all his life, but he was in. And Ben, in fact, not only went on to Stanford, but he went on to be a standout player at Stanford. He was all Pac-12 for three years as a defensive end. Uh, He played on championship teams. He played in the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, and they went to two Rose Bowls during his career. He was a team captain. He was a high-profile guy. He graduated with a degree from Stanford. And then last spring, Ben was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. And so that little baby with the defective head bone and the sort of scary prognosis back in 1991 today is a professional athlete. He lives in Dallas. And he's a terrific young man. We're so proud of him. And he has a Stanford education so that when he's done playing football, he's got plenty of opportunity out there uh, ahead of him. But I'm here to tell you that that chain of events could never have happened if we hadn't been trying to listen and if we hadn't been open during a really dark time back in 1991, uh, if we hadn't been able to say yes and if we'd given in to our fears. When we look back on it now, it's, it's really a miracle how it all came together. Ben has had a miracle life. We've had a miracle family. And we just believe that it's been God having our back all the way along uh, 
when we were willing to stay open and say yes when scary and strange opportunity came our way. So that's a little bit of our story. Um, I don't know your story. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking about making a commitment of some kind. Maybe you're thinking about getting married. Maybe you're thinking about accepting Christ. Or maybe you're contemplating a big move or a career change. Or maybe someone here at Evergreen has been asking you to commit to serve or to give. I don't know what the circumstances are in your life. I'm just trying to share with you a couple of stories from my life, from our life, They're not proof of anything. They're just my experience and the way that I interpret it as I look back and try to understand. And, you know, as they say, actual results may vary, right? Uh, I can't promise what will happen to you if you start uh, practicing saying yes like we've been trying to. But whatever your circumstances, here are a few thoughts uh, about how my story might apply to you. You know, first... I think we really have to work at listening in today's world. It doesn't come easy. It's all too easy to not listen today. It's so tempting because we're just constantly bombarded with stuff. It's tempting to shut out what we don't understand, circle our wagons, close ourselves off. I told you about me. I'm, I'm the greatest at this, at finding reasons uh, to, to hunker down and, and not listen. But again, God speaks to us in the most unlikely and unpredictable ways. He speaks to us through people and circumstances that we don't see coming, and we have to really be listening to hear his signals sometimes. A second thought on application for you is I really encourage you to try this idea of start from yes. Maybe you're already a yes person. I know a lot of you probably are. As I told you before, Kim is much more that way than I am, but this was sort of revolutionary for me. And we've been working on this. We talk about it all the time. We want to make our default outlook to be a bias towards yes until the facts show us otherwise. Now, I know sometimes people just have dumb ideas, right? <laughs> or sometimes they ask us to do things that we just can't do for whatever reason. And, and you know, literally, we can't, we can't literally say yes to everything. But if we try to maintain an attitude of acceptance and of willingness, what I think it does is it tends to open up our heart and it opens up our spirit, and it allows God, it invites him to come in, and it gives him some breathing room to do the things that he has in mind for us. And the third thing I would say to you is we can't always see the path. But there is a path, and God knows where it is, and he knows where it goes. You know, that story about Wisconsin and what ended up happening with that little baby, Ben. I mean, we could never in a million years have dreamed that path. It's beyond us in our imaginations. It's there. And, if you know, if we want to live the full life with Christ, we can't be scared off by a path that looks too rugged or that looks unfamiliar or looks too hard. If we're going to trust Jesus, we have to take that path that's less traveled. And if we do... I absolutely believe he's going to honor our commitment. It was in one of the worship songs this morning, the first song that we sang together. It's like, you know, God's going to come through. He's going to come through. He promised that he would. So I believe that Jesus came and died for, for this. He came and died to conquer our fear and to enable us to be able to travel on roads that we don't know with hope and with confidence. And I think that that's the gift that he's trying to give each one of us. It looks different in the circumstances of each of our lives. I've told you mine. You know what yours might be. He's trying to give us that gift. 
of the hope and the confidence and the conquered fear if we're open to accept it from him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we know that you're here. You promised that you would be when we gather in your name to celebrate your name. And we know, we believe that you have a gift and a plan for each one of us. We don't know what those are, but we pray that you might give us a spirit of acceptance. We pray that you might open our hearts and let us listen and see and discern you. May there be more of you and less of us. And we pray these things by the unmatched name of Jesus. Amen.